I'm encouraged Sunday by Sunday by those people who can fill in too, so fantastic. So we're continuing this morning with our study of the book of Acts, which we've entitled The Dangerous Church. I hope that you have been as encouraged and challenged as I have been. Uh, It's a great study. We call it The Dangerous Church because if we follow what the early church did in the book of Acts, we too will be a dangerous church. And being a dangerous church is not an easy thing. And we see glimpses of it. And sometimes we're totally convinced we are a dangerous church. But it's a hard thing to do. But it's an awesome thing to do. And we're called to do so. Before we get going, I'd like to just uh, pause for a moment of prayer. Steve Aronowitz, would you mind just uh, praying for us this morning? Amen. Thanks, Steve. So, speaking of dangerous, that's my worst transition sentence ever, but you'll find out in a second. Speaking of dangerous, I was reminded of some of the games that me and my brothers used to play as children. So, if you have small children right now, this is the time to put your hands over their ears for just a moment. Uh, Some of you may know I grew up in a large family, seven kids. My mother had uh, three boys under the age of three, and I was number three. She had... um, other children, but she took five years off after I was born. I'm not sure why, but I have a theory. <laughs> so my brothers and I, we were very much, very close in age, and so we hung out a lot together. And because I grew up, I was born in 55, and because I grew up in that sort of post-baby uh, boomer issue time period, there were a lot of kids in our neighborhood. And so it wasn't difficult for us to get a game of baseball together with nine people on each side, no trouble whatsoever. It's just a matter of, of whether we... We uh, had substitutes or not. But we used to play some games together, my brothers and I and a few of the neighborhood boys, and some of them were a little dangerous and some of them were a little crazy, but I was reminded that, that some of them were dangerous. And so I was thinking about that this morning or the other day, and I thought, well, what do we do? We played a lot of games that were not organized. We didn't have referees. We made up games uh, to play with each other. And a few of the games we played, or most of the games we played, had mostly to do with competition. I can do something better than you, longer than you, faster than you, smarter than you, whatever. And so it didn't take very long for my brothers and I to go from from inactivity to instant game. We didn't have to plan it out very often. We just rolled right into it. Uh, But it was always a competition. And it was always head-to-head. And it was always, I'm better than you, let me show you how. And so we used to play these games. And a few of them we used to play. One of them was called uh, Stare Down. This was a fairly harmless game, stupid game, but fairly harmless. And the whole idea was uh, one person would say to the other one, uh, stare at me. And we'd just stare at each other, eyeball to eyeball, and the first one to blink lost. Okay, so it was sort of one of those competitions where you weren't allowed to back down. No backing down. Don't back down was the theme. First one to blink lost. Pretty harmless game, a little stupid, but we played it a lot. It was okay. Then we had this one called Handshake. We saw adults would always greet each other with a handshake, and so at any particular time, we, one of us would say, hey, shake, 
And I'd say, one of the other person would say, one hand or two? And he'd say, one hand, we'd go win the one hand shake. And the whole idea was to grip as hard as you could, squeeze as hard as you could until the other person said to stop. That was fun. <laughs> the two-handed version was even funner because then you could get two hands on it and really, really, really squeeze. And that was, these were pretty short games, though, because then we had to go into the third version of it. But the whole idea was don't back down. And then we had this game... Uh, my mother actually made this game up. It was called, uh, well, actually, she made up this game while we were traveling in the car. It was a long journey, seven of us in a station wagon, and, and her version of this game was be quiet. <laughs> she said, uh, see how long you can stay silent. The first one to speak loses. And so uh, we played that for about 30 seconds <laughs> until my brother figured out what was going on. He said, I'll be the loser. So that ended that game. And then we played a few other ones. Uh, some of them were a little more dangerous. Many of you know I grew up in Minnesota where there are many lakes. We don't know exactly how many there are, but uh, more than 10,000. At least that's the last count. But we went to the lake a lot. And so one of the games we played at the lake was hold your breath. And it was underwater. And so the competition was one, two, three, go. Underwater you go. And the first one to come up for breath of air lost. You wonder what the winner won, don't you? <laughs> The winner won bragging rights until he did it again. Sometimes the winner wound up with lungs, uh, water in his lungs, and sometimes he didn't. But I'm happy to say that through all these years of playing these games, no one ever died. My brothers are both alive. I'm here to tell the story. We, there were a few incidents. My brother, Steve, lost most of his right ear in the golfing incident with a golf club. That was memorable. Jocelyn, be quiet. There was also the issue of Dennis O'Connor, which is another story entirely. Dennis was a, a young neighbor boy up the street, and Dennis's problem was that, um, well, we were playing a game with uh, darts. You know, the kind that you throw at the dartboard. It's an indoor game, right? It's a lot more fun outside. And the higher you throw in the air, the better. And he, anyway, he wound up with blood poisoning. But he, he wound up with one of these darts in his forearm, and uh, I won't tell you through it, <clears throat> but he really should have backed down. He should have. He should have said. <laughs> but no, Dennis had to go the whole way. He said, I'm not backing down. So he wound up in the hospital, and I wound up in trouble. But my all-time favorite game uh, involves uh, one of these. This is my all-time favorite game. We, uh, could I have a slide here? here? Oh, come back. There we go. Some of you, uh, are any of you recognize what this is? A lot of you will say this is a bicycle. This is no ordinary bicycle. This is a 1970 Schwinn Stingray, okay? This was tops on the block on the sidewalk when I was a kid, okay? You don't see these around too much anymore, but this is a classic vintage. If you wanted a bicycle when I was a kid, this is it, right? Chopper handlebars, banana seat, sissy bar in the back, 20-inch wheels, fantastic. Great bike. I didn't have one of those. <laughs> I had one of these. <laughs> this is not a Schwinn. This is a BF Goodrich Challenger, vintage 1946. You'll notice, <laughs> actually, this is not an accurate picture, I must confess. Uh, the bike I had looked a lot like this, but it was a girl's bike. So the red bar that goes across the middle as it goes down so you can step across with your skirt on, it was a lot easier that way. But you'll notice the nice balloon tires, 26-inch tires, one speed, nice handlebars. Uh, it's even got springs on the seats, fantastic. 
And it's got white wall tires, huh? Is that cool or what? This bike was definitely not cool. But the point I'm trying to make is that we played a game on bikes called Chicken. Many of you will know this game because I think it's so popular to still play it today. The whole idea was there's two guys on bikes, one guy on that end of the street and one guy on that end of the street. And at the word go, they would drive their bikes as fast as they could directly towards each other. The object of the game, the object of the game was to get in a head-on collision. That was the object of the game. A successful game ended when the two bikes collided, tire to tire, head-on, okay? But it was a game of skill and mentality because what you wanted the other guy to do was to back down. And you weren't going to back down, and he knew he wasn't going to back down. And so it was a very, very tense game and very exciting game. And the game would end in a number of different ways. Uh, one, the preferred method, if you were riding from that direction, was that the guy riding from this direction would back down and arrive across on the grass, and you declare the winner, and he would be the chicken. Once in a while, both bikes would back down, and one of two things would happen. Either they would, would pass harmlessly onto the grass, or they would, they would collide going in the same direction on the grass. <laughs> the third outcome was that they would collide head-on. And uh, that was pretty exciting. And then when that would happen, we would spend the rest of the day doing three things, uh, repairing our bicycles, nursing our wounds, and bragging about how tough we were. But the point is that backing down as a child in a competitive situation is, um, well, it's an important skill to learn. It really is. Trust me on this one. And now you're wondering, what in the world does this story have to do with the book of Acts? And you'll find out shortly. We're going to jump into the book of Acts today. It's going to be Acts uh, chapter 6 and 7. And what it is, it's all about a confrontation, a game of chicken between the apostles and the Jewish leaders. And actually, it's a series of three games of chicken. We're going to read the third uh, round of the chicken game. And I need to just give you the context of the big picture. On one bike, you have the Sanhedrin, which is the... 70 or so of the top Jewish leaders of the day. And on the other end of the street on a bicycle, you've got the apostles who are out in the world uh, in Jerusalem preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin, of course, is opposed to Jesus. They're the same group that put Jesus to death and crucified him. They are very concerned that the apostles are now marching around Jerusalem telling people about Jesus and leading them to Christ, both Jews and non-Jews. And so they are very much opposed to what the apostles are doing. The apostles, in the meantime, are trying to save as many people as possible. And that's all about the dangerous church. And so we have this story, which round one takes place next three and four. We talked about this a few weeks back. Peter and John healed a crippled man. St. Peter didn't like it, so they brought them in and said, hey, what are you guys doing? Please stop this. Please back down. And Peter said, hmm, I'm not sure whether I should do that or not. Should I obey God or should I obey man? And so the Sanhedrin said, well, I'm not sure what to do with these guys. Uh, let's warn them sternly. We warn them sternly. They threatened them, and then they let them go. But the fact of the matter is, is the Sanhedrin backed down, didn't they? Head-on collision coming. The apostles are saying, no, we're going to continue to preach. And the Sanhedrin says, oh, let's just let them go. That's round one. Round two takes place in Acts chapter 5. And the apostles, of course, were out on the street preaching some more. And so the Sanhedrin brought them back in and said, uh, Hey, uh, I thought we told you guys to stop that. And Peter says, uh, We must obey God rather than none. You guys, the Sanhedrin, you guys put Jesus to death. But Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one, the one we've all been waiting for. We're not going to back down. We're going to keep on preaching. And so the tension rose in the second encounter. And several of them wanted to put the apostles to death, but this guy named Gamaliel, one of the rabbis, came by and he says, well, let's let cooler heads prevail. We don't need to kill them. Let's just warn them sternly and send them off and this whole thing will die out on its own. 
Well, they were pretty mad, so they flogged them instead and then let them go. But they still, they backed down. The apostles said, we're going to continue to preach. The Sanhedrin said, we'll flog you and then we'll let you go. And so they ran their bikes on the grass two times in a row. And now we see the third encounter, round three, and the tension is pretty high. Luke, the writer of Acts, is a very good writer, and you can feel the tension mounting as we hit into round three. So, if you will, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to chapter six of the book of Acts, and we have the third game of chicken. And this time, instead of Peter and John riding the bicycle from that direction, we got this guy named Stephen. Stephen, we don't know too much about, but he's introduced in, in the book of Acts in chapter 6. And Luke tells us uh, a little bit about Stephen. One, he was, could I have my next slide, please? He was known to be full of the spirit in wisdom. That's uh, chapter 6, verse 3. He was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was full of God's grace and power. And he did wonders and miraculous signs. And uh, it says that they, that is the Jews, could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Stephen, first of all, had the qualifications of a deacon. You remember back in chapter 6, the elders wanted some deacons to help distribute food to some of the widows in the church. And one of the qualifications that they had was they needed men who were known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and Stephen filled those qualifications. In addition... Stephen did wonders and miracles, and that's uh, significant because up until this time, only the apostles themselves had had the ability to do so. So Stephen was a little bit special in addition to being a deacon. He also had the ability to perform miracles and signs. And he was also a gifted uh, speaker and debater because it says here that they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. He was a gifted speaker and a gifted debater. And he was no ordinary Christian. He was an exceptional man. He, we, we, as he enters the scene, he's introduced to the scene, we expect something to happen. He walks on the scene. He's special. He's not an ordinary guy. Something big is going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. And so I invite you to open out Acts chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 8. Follow along on the screen if you'd like. Now, Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So Stephen was speaking in the streets, and he was opposed by a group of Jews. We don't know very much about this freedmen group, so let's not dwell on that. But suffice it to say that these Jews were opposed to Jesus, and therefore they were opposed to Stephen because Stephen was speaking about Jesus. And so they engaged Stephen in a number of debates, but Stephen was a little too clever. He was a very good debater, and they couldn't win. They were embarrassed. Every time they had a discussion with Stephen, he shut them down with his speaking ability and his common sense and his logic, and the Jews were, got frustrated with that. So they thought, well, if you can't beat him fair and square, cheat. So what they decided to do was get rid of Stephen. And the best way to get rid of someone who follows Jesus is what? Well, take him before the Sanhedrin, accuse them of blasphemy, and the Sanhedrin will put him in jail or put him to death. It's the same Sanhedrin, it's the same method that they chose to get rid of Jesus. And so they're probably thinking, that worked last time with this guy named Jesus. Let's try it with this guy named Stephen. 
And so that's what they do. And we carry on now in uh, Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? And so they grabbed Stephen. Now, the way they grabbed Stephen is different. They orchestrated that. They planned it out in advance. They set it up. It was all staged. What had happened the previous time was they arrested the apostles. They took them in jail overnight, and an angel came and got them out miraculously. And that looked bad for the Sanhedrin. They weren't going to let that happen again. So they staged the whole thing. They talked to some guys. They recruited some guys to lie. And then they even got themselves on the agenda for the Sanhedrin meeting. So that when the Sanhedrin, all 70 or so, these guys were assembled together, they snatched Stephen off the street and marched him straight into the Sanhedrin so that there wasn't any chance for a miracle to be done. And then they accused him. And this is what they accused him of. They accused him of speaking against the temple, against the law, and against the customs of Moses. And you see that in verse 13 there where it says, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, that is the temple, and against the law. That's the second thing. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and change the customs Moses passed on to them. So there's three things they charged him with. Speaking against the law and against the temple and against the customs of Moses. And their plan then was to accuse Stephen of these three things in front of the Sanhedrin so that the Sanhedrin would decide either to jail him or kill him. So that's what they did. And then the high priest says, at the end of this section, he says, are these charges true? Well, now Stephen gets a chance to defend himself. And what do we expect him to do? Well, any rational person would expect Stephen to stand up and defend himself, to say, really what I thought. Here's what I think about the temple. Here's what I think about the law. Here's what I think about the customs of Moses. Here's what I'm speaking. This is what I said. I didn't say that. I did say this. Defend himself. Clarify it. Justify to the people in front of him that what he said or what he didn't say was either correct or incorrect, but just clarify the whole matter. The Sanhedrin, on the other hand, is expecting him to come in and do one of two things. They've caught him by surprise. They swept him off the street. And they're hoping he's going to panic, maybe recant what he has said, maybe back down. But if not, they're ready to take it further. So what does Stephen do? Well, Stephen does a very strange thing. He launches into a speech. This is the longest speech in the book of Acts. We're not going to read it this morning. It's uh, 52 verses long, and it's a very odd defense. This is not the kind of speech you would expect someone in front of the Sanhedrin to stand up and give. You've just been accused of, of opposing the law and the temple and the customs of the Jews, and he stands up and he gives this really, really long speech, and the speech is a history lesson. It's a history lesson of the Israelite nation. And it's a long speech. It's a detailed description. In fact, if you've never read the Old Testament and you're looking for a Wikipedia version of it, 
something really short that you can read in a few moments. Read chapter 7. It's a very good and concise summary of, of Israelite history. Heaven knows why it's there in this particular place in history because Stephen is standing in front of the Sanhedrin expecting him, them to defend himself. Instead, he gives this long, laborious history of the Israelite nation. A very odd defense. And it leaves you about three-quarters of the way through thinking, is he crazy? Is he maybe trying to lull them into sleep? Is he trying to bore them so much that they'll say, all right, just let the guy go. I can't listen to any more of this drivel. But if you read it carefully, very carefully, and it's a long chapter and it's difficult, but if you read it very carefully, you'll find that Stephen's uh, method does have some sense to it. It's not totally mad. He's really trying to show three things. One, he's trying to show that God's presence is not limited to the temples or its customs. One of the issues the Jews had was that the temple, the temple, the temple was so important for their worship. And, and Stephen is trying to show that God's bigger than the temple. God's bigger than the temple. Secondly, he wants to show that the ancestors, their ancestors, had rejected the law of Moses. All those guys, their fathers, their great-grandfathers, their great-great-great-grandfathers, all the way back through the history of Israel, they have always, always rejected God's law. And that's another thing that comes through very clearly as he's walking through this history. And the third point is that their rejection of, 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 of God and of God's law was a pattern throughout history. It wasn't just a one-time event. It kept happening over and over and over again. And so as he goes through here, as he talks about Abraham and he talks about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon, he's making these three points. And things are going along. And you can imagine the Sanhedrin doing a little bit of this, you know. Oh, is this guy ever going to finish? And he's walking along and it's going slowly. And you, you, if you read it and if you're a little bit sleepy, you kind of get dredged down. And, and, and finally you get to verse 51 and all of a sudden you wake up and you go, what? Right in the middle of this history lesson, Stephen takes off. And it's almost like he goes crazy. Because he's talking along about, the, about the, the history of the nation. And he hits verse 51, and wham, it just hits you like a two-by-four in the head. He says, you stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people. He's talking to 70 of the Sanhedrin, the, the largest Jewish leaders of the nation, with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And it's almost as though he's standing there giving this long lecture, a history, a history, a history, a history, a history. And all of a sudden, he just goes, you are stubborn. You are unteachable. You don't listen. Your hearts are cold and mean. You're just like your fathers. You resist the Holy Spirit. You put the prophets to death. And then when the righteous one comes along, you murdered him. You guys are supposed to be in charge of the law and you don't obey it. And that's my defense. And you can just imagine all 70 of these guys sitting in their chairs listening to theirs. History upon history upon history. 
And all of a sudden, in verse 51, they go, what did he say? And these guys just come out of their chairs. They're just absolutely shocked. Stephen is now turning the tables on them. He says, you accuse me of opposing the law. I accuse you of opposing the law. You accuse me of desecrating the temple. I accuse you of opposing the temple. You accuse me. I accuse you. You're guilty, not me. And now, suddenly, Stephen has challenged the entire Sanhedrin to a game of chicken. The whole Sanhedrin. You accuse me of doing that stuff? No. I'm good. You did it wrong. I challenge you. A very dangerous game. And Stephen finds himself suddenly, very quickly, down here on the end of the street on his 1946 Goodrich Challenger riding in this direction. And he sees coming at him, not a kid on a bicycle, but he's got 70 leaders of the Jewish nation coming at him. And they're not riding bicycles, they're driving bulldozers. And he's got to be thinking just about this point, maybe I should back down. But he doesn't. He's going at it, and he's pedaling, and he's got his tire pointed straight at the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin now has to make a choice. And they're getting closer and closer to each other. The Sanhedrin says, whoa, wait a minute. We backed down twice now. We're not backing down again. We're mad. We're angry. And you can read it, what happens next. When they heard this, chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And this whole story, which is accelerated to a crescendo, suddenly just ends, bam! I accuse you, you can't accuse me. And now the bicycles are heading towards each other and they collide head on. Boom! And the Sanhedrin is so mad, they're gnashing their teeth at him and they're covering up their ears like children. Ah! Let me out of here! They can't stand the sounds that Stephen is making. And they grab him and they drag him outside of the city. And this wasn't quick, mind you, because it would have taken them at least a couple of miles to get out of the city. They had plenty of chances to change their mind or to cool down. I can only imagine they got madder and madder the further they went. They're carrying Stephen out of the city and they take him over to a cliff and they throw him over the side and they pick up large rocks and they throw them at Stephen and hit him and hit him and hit him and hit him until he's dead. That's the worst outcome of a game of chicken I have ever seen. And so, what's the application for us? Well, first of all, it's a powerful reminder that we will be persecuted. Paul reminds Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.12, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. That's the first point. We should not be surprised. We should expect it. When it comes, that's normal. Secondly, it's a direct application of a promise that Jesus made to his disciples before he left. Jesus told his disciples, he said, don't worry, if you ever get arrested or brought before the authorities, just speak whatever's on your mind. The Holy Spirit 
will help you speak. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, and when he got dragged in front of the Sanhedrin in this very, very difficult position, he spoke, God told him what to spoke, and the surprising result, including verse 51, where he turns the church tables on them and says, I accuse you, that all came from the Holy Spirit. Mark 13.11 says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he said, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen, in this story, is a great application of Jesus' promise. Now, we won't get hauled before the Sanhedrin very often. Very few of us will be called to account in front of some authority or government uh, court in any way to account for why we believe in Jesus. We have spiritual freedom in this country, which is a great thing. Other countries, people get called in front of the courts to explain and to defend themselves. And the Holy Spirit will help them when that happens. But the application for us has got to be very simple. Don't back down. Don't back down. And what I mean by this is that we have opportunities to stand up for God every day that we walk around in this life. And we have been called to be bold. We have been called to stand tall. We've been called to stand firm. We've been called to not back down. Not to remain silent. Not to be cautious or politically correct. Stephen was certainly not politically correct. And there's hundreds of examples. They don't have to be big, wild examples like Stephen's example here. Some of them are quite simple. I was in London two weeks ago. I had a dinner with some people, and during the course of the dinner, the conversation, as it does, sort of wanders around and don't even know how it got there, but one of the women at the table mentioned that she had been kicked in the face by a horse and she had gone into a coma for two weeks. For two weeks, they didn't think she was ever going to come back. And it was quite a traumatic thing, obviously, for her. And as she talked about it, I could tell it was troubling even now. It would happen maybe five or six years ago. And so I took the opportunity to say something simple like, well, how did that affect your, your outlook on life, your outlook on your own mortality? Did it give you a sense of who God is or anything like that. It's a natural thing to ask. It wasn't clumsy. And she said an interesting thing. She said, yes, it had an impact. She said one thing that it did is it, it enabled her or made her focus on the important things in life, like her children, but it had ruined her relationship with God. I said, wow, why, why is that? She said, because God is not good. Oof. Why do you think that? She said, because if God were good, he wouldn't allow all the bad things and senseless things that happen in this world every single day. Now, she didn't realize that she had just insulted my God. She simply was sharing her opinion, and that was fine. But I had a choice. I could either change the subject and move on or simply mumble something, wow, that's, that's very difficult, and move on to a different subject, or I could stop and, and, and say something, and so I did. And so we had a conversation, and I took the bold step among uh, people at this table, and I told her my perspective about it, gently. And then uh, there was a young Russian 
guy at the table there, and he joined in the conversation also, but I didn't back down. I decided that this was a time when I could stand firm. Now, I, I give you that example because it's a very small example, isn't it? This isn't one of these big, bold things where I'm taking a huge risk. There were some risks involved, but it was an easy thing to do. And we have those opportunities every single day, don't we? We have those opportunities every single day to stand up for our God, to stand up for Jesus, to stand up for what we believe in, or we can back down. And when we have those little, those little crunches, those little times when you've got a little game of chicken going on and you're a little bit afraid, well, maybe I'll just go off on the grass here, sometimes we can make the decision to stand firm and keep going, stay on the road, even if it results in a small crash. But we have those opportunities every day, whether it's at school or at home or out on the yard with a neighbor or whether it's at work or on the water cooler or on an airplane or at the gym. And we encounter people and we have the opportunity to stand up and we need to do so. And Stephen set a great example for us. We must do so. God has told us to do so. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 80, he said, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Do not be ashamed to do so. And Jesus told his disciples in Luke 9.26, he said, If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory. God says, don't back down. But sometimes we back down anyway because sometimes it's not that easy to do. Because sometimes there's a cost involved in don't back down. Just as in the game of chicken, if you don't back down, the cost is you're probably going to wind up with a crumpled fender and some scrapes and some bruises and a broken bike and your mother screaming and yelling at you, why are you such an idiot? But that's a pretty small cost to pay for a game of chicken, as much fun as it is. But in life, as we encounter other people, the cost we have is sometimes big and sometimes small. I had a conversation very much like this with my boss a few weeks ago, and I didn't back down. I don't know what impact that will have on me as, a, as an employee. I don't know whether he'll look at me and say, well, I didn't realize the guy was so religious. His words, not mine. But there are costs. People might think we're weird. People might think we're strange. People might think we're pig-headed, stubborn, biased. People might insult us, talk about us behind our backs. People might not want to invite us over for a party. But there's costs associated with those, but we don't back down. There are tremendous benefits, too. We have a choice. We can remain silent and move on, drive our bikes safely under the grass, have a glass of Kool-Aid, sit in the sun. Or we can keep our bikes firm down the middle of the road and don't back down. And we don't know how God will use our boldness. Stephen did not know, I believe, that Stephen did not know when he stood up to the Sanhedrin that they were going to kill him. I don't think he knew that. And he certainly didn't know the impact that his action would have on the church after he was dead. And if you turn to uh, uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, the second half of that verse says, On that day, that is on the day that Stephen got stoned to death for standing up to the Sanhedrin, for standing up, refusing to back down on his own beliefs, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And you think, well, that sounds like a bad thing, but it's not. It's exactly what God had planned. You see, God had told, Jesus had told his disciples in Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, 
implying don't just stay here in Jerusalem, get out there and tell everybody you know. And yet, at this point in time, they were still in Jerusalem. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus told them again, He said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. And you see it right there, Judea and Samaria. God used Stephen's death on the day that Stephen decided, I'm not going to back down to spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. Stephen was bold. He didn't compromise. And God used Stephen because he didn't back down. I want to close this morning by looking back at the end of Acts 7. This happened just before the Sanhedrin rushed at Stephen to stone him. Stephen saw something significant. If you turn to Acts chapter 7, verse 55, it says, we'll read it again, it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Just as Stephen was about to get stoned, God gave him a vision. He allowed him to see into heaven. Now, this isn't going to happen to us when we have conversations with people typically. You shouldn't expect this. But there's a significant thing that happened here, and there's a reason why Luke recorded it. When Stephen is not backing down, and he's standing up for what he believes, God gave him a little glimpse of heaven. But it's a very strange vision that he sees. It's odd. It's odd because what he sees is he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And the odd thing is that he's standing. Because everywhere else in the Bible, it talks about Jesus being seated, seated at the right hand of God. And I think it's significant that he's standing. Because I think what's happening here is Jesus is looking down on Stephen. He's saying, Stephen, you're about to meet your death. And Jesus stands up in Stephen's presence to honor him, to welcome him into heaven, and to say, good job, Stephen. Jesus stood at Stephen's death. And I like to think that even though we're not going to be called to stand before the Sanhedrin and get pummeled with rocks until we're dead, we have the opportunity on an everyday basis to stand up for Jesus. And when we do so, I'm not sure that Jesus is going to stand up. I don't know what he's going to do, but I think he's going to give us a thumbs up. He might just give us a little salute. He might just say, good job. Because when we're used that way, I think God, God likes that. God is honored by that. And so my encouragement today, don't back down. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much for the story of Stephen. It's a shocking story. A great and powerful encouragement, Lord, to us that you called us to be your witnesses here on this earth. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be bold, help us not to compromise. Help us at all times, Lord God, to stand up for you and to be bold, to speak where we need to speak, to confront where we need to confront in all things, Lord God, to not back down. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.